Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day. Every day is a gift from you. We thank you for being alive and having the chance to bring you glory again. One more day. And we look forward to the day that we meet you face to face, Father. And we can give you full praise for the life you gave us and what you allowed us to do on your behalf. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that your spirit guide us and help us understand this very important subject of grace and works. Have it be a supernatural working spiritually in our souls that only you can do. And most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man and to take our place once for all so that the sin issue has been defeated. We ask all these things in his precious name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 6. So these lessons uh, have been wonderful, and they're so important to dwell on and pray on, rather than just putting them aside, you know, on a shelf in your soul. Um, I hope, you know, we all take the time to either review the lessons and or ask God to show us what he wants us to see. And that takes time. That takes like devoted time, you know. Not, not some, you know, I don't know how to say it, ignoring it in a way. Like, all right, I heard the lesson. I'm good. He gives to those who seek, right? And part of seeking is that process of going to him, even if it's in 10 minutes of private time, and just like closing your eyes and be like, okay, what, what are you trying to say here? What am I missing? Because is it fair to say we're all missing something? <laughs> and, you know, especially as we, we keep getting into the, depths of the gospel, so to speak, and the grace and works issue and things like this, we're all missing something. You might think you have it, but we're missing one or two or three things that can open everything up to us. And so in humility, when we go to him, when we ask and we seek, that's when he gives us more. And what we're really seeing, I think, even from behind the pulpit, is grace upon grace. More and more grace. And the more we seek him, the more he's going to give us. And he wants to give us more. But it depends upon our humility. And Pastor gave us this bold reality statement on Sunday. It's about humility and dedication to the Lord. It's really that simple. Like how seriously do we take our relationship with the Lord? Or is it a side thing in our soul? Or a duty? so that we can just get on with our own life, you know? I mean, we all fall into that trap and that wrong mindset once in a while. So it's a matter of priorities in our hearts. And if your priorities are off right now in your heart, then go to the Lord in prayer about it. Ask Him to fix it. I mean, that's what He wants from us, right? To admit we're wrong, to repent, to go to Him in humility and say, all right, I don't know it all. And, you know, show me. Uh, my priorities are messed up. You know it. I know it. Fix this. 
And one of the apostles' great prayers to the Lord was, increase our faith. So let's stay humble, you know, as we go through these topics like grace and works and whatever else the Spirit is, is opening up to us. Um, take that time to go to God and be like, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. I like to think I do, but show me deeper what you're trying to say in this series. So God is currently providing grace upon grace from this pulpit for those who desire to know our God of grace more and more. And it begins with a perspective change for many of us regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ and regarding grace. On the board, man needs to be reconciled to the perfect holy God. God does not need to be reconciled to man. Yet today's so-called grace gospel supposes that God is on his knees begging man to let him save them. The truth is man ought to be on his name uh, on his knees rather with a contrite heart begging God to save him. Now when you see that in writing that's pretty clear, right? Kind of obvious almost. But I think it's a subtle thing that goes on in man's soul. And I think uh, people in this day and age have been trained with this accommodating gospel. Supposing, falsely supposing, that God is on his knees begging man to let him save them. When it's the other way around. So let's look again at what the Lord himself said in John 15, 16. Go to John 15, verse 16. You know, anytime you want to be humbled, you pretty much just got to go to the Lord's words, right? Because a lot of his words are very challenging. And they, they, they put man in his place. And here's another thing to remind us of our place. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This is a stunning statement for many believers, even. And yes, you may have believed in the Lord, but where did you get the faith to believe? Honestly, ask yourself, where did you get the faith to believe? Have you ever asked yourself that? I have many times, especially when I first became saved. I was like, Lord, you know, why? Why have you opened my eyes? Why don't others have the faith that you gave me? And it's a good question. And the answer is, it's a supernatural gift given you by your gracious God and Creator. That's the only answer. When He saw humility in your soul, an honest desire for the truth, then He revealed it. It was all of Him. He revealed it to you, and he gave you the ability to repent and personally believe in the Lord. All that was from him. So if you think you believed, stop yourself, stop short there and think again. He gave you the ability to believe, even. Even the faith to believe. When he saw humility in your soul, he revealed the truth. And he even followed up and said, okay, here's how it works. You know, we can't describe this. But here you go, here's repentance and here's faith. And now I'm going to save you and I'm taking you, taking you to salvation. 
How that happens, we can't describe. But that's what God did. So on the board, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This statement from Jesus, in accordance with his Father's election of believers, stands as the antithesis to and indictment of today's so-called grace gospel. God chooses who he wants to be in his family. We do not put God on trial and choose if we can be a part or if he can be a part of ours. It's a perspective. It's looking at it the wrong way if we think, you know, we can choose for him to be a part of ours. Oh, he's so honored, you know. He's been waiting. He's been on his knees waiting for you. Or is it that God chooses who he wants in his family? And he's only going to invite those who are humble. So the watered-down gospel indirectly tells man that it's optional to have good results in his life at salvation. That following the Lord is optional. That's what the watered-down gospel implies. Maybe not directly in words, but that's what it implies or suggests. That following the Lord is optional if man chooses to give up his self-life beyond the free ticket to heaven idea. It's optional. That is not what the Lord said. They are one and the same belief system. True belief results in following the Lord. That's what true belief looks like. In John 10, 27, we've seen it over and over. True belief results in following the Lord. They're one and the same belief system. So that is contrary to God's grace. If God saves someone, good fruit comes forth in the believer's life because God has empowered him with his grace. That's, that's, the, that's true salvation. It's the full package given at salvation or there's no salvation given. The Lord won't give it on man's terms is what we've been learning that watered-down version. That would be a different version of salvation, which is actually not salvation and deliverance at all. How can it be called salvation if someone isn't actually saved from sin and delivered from that abode to the abode of righteousness? How can it even be called salvation? And would the Lord choose you and appoint you to go bear fruit and not provide you the grace and power to bear fruit for him? I mean, it seems like a silly question, doesn't it? Would the Lord choose you and appoint you to go bear fruit and then not provide you the grace and power to bear fruit? Silly, silly suggestion. That's exactly the point of this whole series. That's what the watered-down gospel suggests. The very thing those chosen were appointed to was to bear fruit in John 15, 16. So apparently that's an integral part of God's saving grace in the life of a chosen believer. That's part of the package. That's part of salvation itself. Look again at John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. It's immediate. It's right there. It's part of being chosen. What are you chosen for? To go bear fruit. Notice the Lord mentions fruit bearing immediately following election as the primary purpose of his calling. Makes sense, really, when you think about it, how wonderful really it is. It's like, why wouldn't God choose you to bear fruit? Or why wouldn't you bear fruit if he chooses you, if that's his purpose in it all? So in the simplicity of God's plan, he says he saved us for a divine good purpose. He didn't save us for nothing. He saved us for a new life that produces good fruit that doesn't fall short. It can't fall short because God's grace is alive and active in that person's life. They're a new creature. So the life of a believer, a true believer, it won't be just wasted away like fruitless. It'll be wonderfully fruitful in some way because the grace of God is active in that believer's life. It's just a fact. It's part of the package. It's part of the Lord's calling in John 15, 16. To think that God's salvation, you know, or God's grace would be impotent, produce nothing, is, is such a foolish thought. And yet the watered-down gospel says that's okay. And it's not okay. It's not possible even. Go in your Bibles again to Ephesians 1.3. We saw this on Sunday. And this just um, kind of reinforces the fact that God is the one that chooses us. Ephesians 1.3. So again, the life of a believer will not be just wasted away. It's going to be fruitful in some way because the grace of God is now active in the believer's life. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Salvation is not man's choice. It's God's by his kind intention in verse 5. It's God's. He chose us in verse 4. Salvation isn't man's choice. It's God's. After all, he's the possessor of it. He's the owner of salvation and eternal life. How else can you get it if he's the one that holds on to it and, and is the only one that controls it. He's the only source of it. You can't get it anywhere else. You can't go to Walmart or whatever. You can't go online to Amazon. You can't manufacture it on your own. He's the possessor and the owner of it. It's his gift to give, in other words. And that's the only way you can receive it, if he gives it. When a man humbles himself before this God and Savior, this sovereign God who is the source of all things. And when a man humbles himself to 
God's way of salvation, he's granted repentance that leads to life. He's given it. And he's also given saving faith by that same grace. But the arrogant man lives in anti-grace, not turning to God as the source of salvation even, not thinking he needs it to be a gift. He needs it to be given or he won't be able to get it or earn it or whatever. That's the arrogant man's thought process. So on the board regarding anti-grace, God is not our puppet. He did not give us the Bible so that we might try to make him, make him one, make him a puppet, though some do. God is not an attorney like Satan either, trying to argue his case. He's judge and jury. I mean, just think about that statement right there. God is not an attorney like Satan trying to argue his case. He doesn't need to argue his case. And if people understood that, that God's not begging them, he, he's just saying, I'm judge and I'm jury and I love you terribly, but this is the reality of the situation. I'm judge and I'm jury. You need to humble yourself before me. We may propose to choose him all we want, but if he doesn't choose us, we're not saved. How about that perspective of a demanding gospel? You know, the one that Jesus Christ himself presented? How about dropping the accommodating version of the gospel where we say to people, oh, it's okay, you know, stay in that sin, keep your own life and your own ways. God doesn't care. He just wants you to acknowledge him. Just say you believe in Jesus, you'll be okay. Was that the gospel Jesus presented? I'm exaggerating a bit with that, that line, but think about that accommodating perspective you may have had in the past rather than the demanding perspective of you have a problem. God is sovereign Lord, and he has a problem with your sin. And the Bible says, you know, one day every man will die and there will be a judgment. So you have a problem. You need to repent. And he'll give you grace. He'll give you grace if you humble yourself before him but only then will he choose to save you. So it's a perspective change for a lot of us, I think. You know, rather than this accommodating, watered-down version, Jesus himself presented a demanding gospel. He's like, you want all of me or you want none of me? You don't want to eat my flesh and drink my blood? You can go away. People struggle with that. And of course, you know, makes sense, right? What does he mean, eat my flesh and drink my blood? But it was a challenge. It was, do you really want to know me? Do you want to find out what that means? Or are you going to walk away right now because you really don't care about me, the person? You're here for other reasons. So it's a totally different perspective. And that was the perspective of the Lord himself. And he did that all in love, by the way. Don't forget that. That whole demanding, sovereign presentation of the gospel, he always did it in love. And we can do the same thing. 
But this is the right perspective that God has been taking us to. The right perspective of grace even. If God is the one who grants repentance, belief, and faith that saves, how can man possibly choose to be saved? He cannot. I mean, we've been to scripture after scripture after scripture that says repentance, belief, and faith are granted by God. So how can man choose to be saved? How is that possible? He can't unless God gives it. It's by grace alone that God saves man. He's looking for a contrite, humble heart. This is the immensity and fullness of true grace. That God's saying, I just want to see that you are humble. That you admit you need. And you do that thing to me, reaching out, so to speak, in some spiritual sense, then I'm going to give it all to you. You can't even manufacture your own repentance. You can't manufacture your own faith. I'm going to give it all to you if you just humble yourself. So we might tell others God is calling you to humble yourself before him. Do you realize you have a big problem called sin and that God won't accept your own attempts to please him? That might be what we present people with. God's calling you to humble yourself before him. Do you realize that you have a big problem called sin that God doesn't just overlook? And that God also won't accept your own attempts to please him? Deny self and follow me? Part of that denying self is, okay, I can't, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. So on the board, we've been talking about Jesus' grace gospel. The true gospel places the onus on humility. False gospels often place the onus on man's ability to repent, believe, have saving faith. Almost like telling man, God, manufacture your own faith. Instead of saying, you need to humble yourself before the Lord. You're not in a safe place right now, in a good position right now. No matter how good you think you are, you're not in good standing with God right now. The true gospel places the onus on humility. False gospels often place the onus on man's ability to repent, believe, have saving faith. But these, as Scripture says, are gifts from God. And in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. There are no exceptions or other ways or other options. And people won't become humble until they realize this truth. They can't be saved without God's grace reaching out to them and even giving everything to them. So they must humble themselves before the mighty hand of God. And then God's grace gives everything full, full provision for salvation and everything involved in it. As mentioned on Sunday, our society and our young people are becoming more and more arrogant in general, and that manifests itself in lack of respect for authority. Americans are getting really good at putting authority on trial. 
that leads to putting God on trial because he's the ultimate source of all authority. We know that. Most people don't see it that way. But that's basically what people are doing. So again, regarding anti-grace, anti-authority is anti-grace. Anti-authority likes to put God on trial or any one of his delegates. It assumes the posture of judge and jury. See, here's again man thinking more of himself than he ought to think. That he has some power or control in this deal, making a deal with God. It assumes the posture of judge and jury. Nowhere is this more fundamentally damaging than with the gospel. False gospels put man in charge. Think about that. The watered-down, accommodating version of the gospel puts man in charge. It says, okay, you, you can decide right now. You, you have some power in this equation. And it, it gives them a false hope, a false feeling of security or power that's not really there. False gospels put man in charge. A very interesting way to put it. That's the accommodating gospel, letting man think he has some say in salvation and that he can choose the way it's received, even by his own standards. And so you're you're deceiving people. You're allowing people, if you give that gospel, you're allowing people to stay living in a lie. That's how serious it is. It's obviously a subtle lie from Satan we are subject to God's standards and God's ways. That's, that's giving the, the, the true gospel. We're subject to Him, not the other way around. And you need to repent. You need to humble yourself. You need to realize the situation you're in. You're not in control. The way is narrow that leads to life. When man can stay in charge, he's not bowing to the sovereignty of the Lord. And as we've been learning, that's a vital part of saving faith even. He's not accounting or uh, giving the Lord his proper due in who he is as sovereign Lord. So again, back to no one coming to Jesus unless the Father draws him. On the board in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We saw the Greek word for draws on Sunday from Helko, and according to Strong's Concordance, it means to drag, draw, pull, persuade, unsheath. In context, refers to God's design for salvation by grace. Even the initial coming to Jesus is a gracious provision from our sovereign God. Even the initial coming to Jesus moment is a gracious provision from our sovereign God. That's the right perspective. As I said earlier, have you ever wondered, Lord, why did you show me the truth? Why did you open my eyes to the gospel and and that salvation was only through your son? And why not other people? He drew you towards him. That's what happened. You didn't know it at the time. He drew you towards him. He called. And you answered in humility. And when he saw that humility in your soul, 
He gave it all to you. He gave you repentance, faith, belief, supernaturally. It occurred, it happened, he, he quickened you. He made it happen for you. So you actually can't explain all that took place at that moment of salvation. You can't explain what took place spiritually in your soul. But now looking back on it, we can say, you know what, he drew me. By grace, he drew me. Despite the wretch I was. By grace, he drew me, and then he gave it to me. Repentance, faith, etc. He quickened you. So on the board, God's grace and salvation, let's give God all the credit here. Let's not take any of it away. It's all to the praise of the glory of His grace in Ephesians 1.6. It's all to His credit. It's all His doing. Even the faith to believe. Man cannot even take credit for believing. Forget taking credit for good works. How foolish is that? when you can't even take credit for believing, when faith is a gift too. Every part of salvation is a grace gift from God and from His own sovereign choice to bestow it. And that's the perspective we need to share with people, even when giving the gospel. On the board, salvation is God's choice, not man's. God chooses to save who he desires. Man does not say to God, I believe, therefore you have to save me. Well, what kind of attitude is that? Sounds like arrogance. And God's like, are you like making a demand of me? What, what are you saying? I believe, therefore you must save me. And this is a heart issue. You see? God is not submissive to man's free will. It's the other way around. God sees the heart of man and chooses to save the humble because he loves a contrite heart. He's waiting and waiting. For many of us, he waited decades. He's waiting and waiting and waiting for you to have a humble heart. Some people, it takes them getting all the way to the deathbed. I talked to a guy today who had a heart attack months ago, like a big one. Like out of the blue, too. He was a healthy guy, all that good stuff. And he was just humble enough today to listen to the gospel. I wouldn't say he accepted it, but he did listen. And before the heart attack, I don't think he would have listened. So what does God do? He's, he waits, he waits, he waits to see that humility, to see someone that wants to know, and then he gives it all. He's looking for that contrite heart. Psalm 51.17, Isaiah 57.15, Isaiah 66.2, Jeremiah 44.10, John 14.23, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, just to name a few. On the board again in Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And the call to surrender, or the call is to surrender in humility to God's grace. Like 1 Peter 5, 5 on the board. 
You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, this is a perspective change for some. Again, on the board, salvation is God's choice, not man's. God chooses to save those who he desires. Man does not say to God, I believe, therefore you must save me. God is not submissive to man's free will. Man's free will still exists, and God won't violate it. But God is not submissive to man's free will. God sees the heart of a man and chooses to save the humble. He loves a contrite heart. True grace means God does all the work in salvation. And God gives that grace only to the humble. And when he does it, though, he releases it fully. It's like a tidal wave. The repentance, the faith, the belief, the locking in salvation, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. But God only gives that grace to the humble. Arrogance tries to add to God's plan of salvation tries to keep control, tries to interject its own ideas and preferences to it even. And again, there we have the accommodating gospel. It's really accommodating the arrogance of man. Think about what a crime that is for us to accommodate the arrogance of man. Let me soften this a little bit so that you're, you don't get too offended. Why would we play to or give in to the arrogance of man? What did the apostles do in the book of Acts? They boldly proclaimed the gospel. They said, repent. Repent and be baptized or repent and whatever. Many times they use the word repent. Why? That's a wake-up call. It's like you're not in good standing. You're arrogant right now. They didn't soften the blow. So why do we? Because we're scared of appearing legalistic? Was Jesus scared of appearing legalistic by telling people to repent? I mean, let's tell people the truth. Let's not handicap them by softening the blow and making them think they have a, a peace in this. So that's why it's harmful for any of us to give out that weak gospel because we're giving in to man's arrogance and hurting them by not making it clear their need for humility and surrender to the sovereign God. And God is opposed to arrogance, as we know. He will not and cannot give his gifts to someone who doesn't humble himself before him. So let's tell people the, the truth, right? Why water it down for easier consumption? on the board regarding efficacious grace. God loves a contrite heart and so gives grace to the humble. Every component of salvation is completed by the efficacious grace of God. Every component. And that leaves man in a starter state. There's nothing he can claim stake to that's good about him. That leaves man in a starter state of humility or arrogance regarding sin and the need for a Savior. That's really the, the issue placed on man's plate. 
And God says, okay, you know, choose. Are you ready yet or not? And then God does everything else. The whole of salvation, really. He's just looking for that indication in the heart, I guess we might say. God's plan for salvation is, is all by grace alone. We give God credit for the fullness of His grace and the totality of salvation. But people can, are allowed to, if you will, reject God's grace and reject God's call. They do it all the time. Many of us did it for years. As much as the Lord would like to see everyone saved, He will not compromise His integrity. He never watered down His gospel. And He will not save someone that doesn't admit His need for God's grace. Again, man is the one that needs to be reconciled to God, not the other way around. So let's keep that perspective. You might say, oh, I know that. But let's keep that attitude, that proper perspective when we talk to people. And we can do it all in love. But that is the, the demanding gospel. That is a true gospel. So we also talked about on Sunday, efficacious grace rejected. The Pharisees are, great, are a great example of people refusing to believe the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will press into a person regarding the sin issue. If a person responds humbly, the Spirit will impress upon them their need for a Savior. Contrarily, if a person responds arrogantly, they blaspheme the Spirit, which basically is calling him a liar. In Matthew 12, 30-37, and in Hebrews 12, uh, 10, 29, rather. On the board, Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. This is a rejection of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's calling the Spirit a liar. The Spirit's on their soul saying, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you're being arrogant, you're being foolish. And then to deny Him is to say, All right, you're, you're lying to me right now. That's not true. The Spirit tells them the truth in their soul, and they say, no, I'm good. In fact, I'm good enough to save myself. A big problem in our geographical location. Or some other version of that. I'm good. I don't really need you right now. Look at me. Look at my life. I got some money in the bank. I'm a good person. People like me. <laughs> What's that movie? People like me. They really, really like me or something. I don't know what I'm thinking of. But that's what people say in their souls. And it, therefore, they push the Spirit away. They're like, I really, don't, I really don't need that. I really don't need you. So, when God's grace is received in humility, everything changes. Everything changes. It's like a whirlwind. It's like a tidal wave, whatever you, analogy you want to use. God does it all. That's, that's true grace. The believer is graced out, not because of anything he did, but because he's willing to admit his need and his unworthiness before God. So that's efficacious grace received. When God chooses to save someone, actually it's already completed from God's perspective, of course, 
but we're speaking as a man. When God chooses to save someone, His Spirit baptizes them into union with the Son. He makes the believer a new creature, totally changed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whose ministry expands tremendously to that person because of the indwelling. Romans 8, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 2 Timothy 1, 14. On the board, we saw 2 Timothy 1, 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Really referring to the, the treasure, the gospel, the pearl that one finds and goes and sells everything for. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you that treasure. That's the believer now. Now, if the believer is a new creature with a perfect new nature that can't sin, what should we expect from this? If that's true, if you're a new creature at the point of surrender to Jesus Christ, if you're a new creature, what should we expect from this new creature? What else could we possibly expect but God's goodness alive in that person? If it's true what the Bible says about us as believers, what, what possibly, how could anything not good come from that person? How could we not expect goodness to flow from that person if Jesus Christ lives inside of them, for example? This got us asking the right question on Sunday regarding efficacious grace. Is God's grace effective or isn't it? Instead of asking the wrong question, will a believer produce fruit? Ask the right question, which is, why wouldn't they? Especially since Jesus himself said they would. Remember what we just saw in John 15, 16? Jesus said the very reason he chooses someone is to bear good fruit. How does that not happen then? How does that possibly not happen? If he chooses someone, plucks them out of the dominion of sin and places them in the dominion of righteousness, and as a perfect new creature, he recreates you. And you're perfect now. How does good fruit not happen? It's silly to even entertain the question. So, again, in John 15, 16, Jesus said the very reason he chooses someone is to bear good fruit. It's like building a car that's not meant to drive. Absolutely foolish, right? What other purpose does a car have? A new creature, what other purpose does the new creature have than to produce good fruit? The new nature, the new creature, was created to bear good fruit, bringing glory to God, his creator. And yet man claims it's possible for no good fruit to reside in this new perfect creature. None. Not necessary, or whatever the word you want to use. When that's God's very purpose in creating the new creature to begin with. And that brings us back to this point. On the board, Jesus' own words don't fit into today's perverted gospel. Don't fit. Not comfortable. It's only when arrogant man 
tries to stake a claim in salvation or tries to remain in charge by compromising God's demands that this evil infiltrates the true gospel. Softening the blow. Not going to Jesus' word, Jesus' words. Not telling the whole story about sin and repentance and humility. Ultimately, what's the reason for that? Man refuses to bow before the sovereign of the universe. I'll bow halfway. How's that? God will be pleased. How arrogant we are. So again, regarding efficacious grace, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And the word alive is not merely a judicial reality. It's a whole person reality. It's a change. The person is made new at that moment. It's not just a promise for heaven, right? You'll be new when you get to heaven. For now, suck it up. Just wait. There's no hope right now, but the hope's in heaven. Is that what it says? Or does it say you're a new creature right now? You've been made alive. You've been made new. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, has it right now, and does not come to judgment, but has already, not will be in heaven, has already passed out of death into life. Supernaturally, remember. John 5, 24. And we saw the Greek word for passed out of, metabeno, and the Strong's Concordance says it means to change my place or abode. Just think about that for a minute. Remember that. Passed out of death into life means to change my place or abode. To leave, depart, remove, pass over. In context in John 5.24, it refers to a complete change from the dominion of sin, where sin is Lord, to the dominion of righteousness, where Christ is Lord. This speaks of God's saving work. That's what God did. He literally plucked you out of death and out of sin and placed you in a new abode. Allow me to share with you an analogy the Spirit gave me while in prayer last week. And when it came to me, I was immediately asking him, what do you want me to do with this? Uh, is it for my own understanding? Do you want me to share this at some point? And then on Sunday, the point on the board came up using the same exact word that this analogy you know, was given to me, this word abode. So I'm going to share it with you. And all I can say is God is good and he's faithful and he prepares all this just for you. So here's the analogy. You and I were born into a certain house, and that house was our home. It was a dark house, one filled with sin and deceit and confusion, lacking love and security. And when he called us and we accepted, he gave us repentance and faith in Christ. And then you know what he did? He brought us into his abode, into his home. 
He literally took us from the dark house that we were born in and trapped in and took us out and adopted us and placed us in his own home. He adopted us, the Bible says. And he brought us into his father's home, a home filled with light and love and security and a home without confusion and worry. No longer an abode filled with sin and its domination. And as a side note, this is where love is a good picture. A home filled with love is one where sin cannot reign. Think about that. A home filled with love is one where sin cannot reign. Because the Bible says love never fails, and love even fulfills the whole law, which means no sin. And so he's placed us in that place, that home, his home, the home of righteousness and the home of love. So believers now reside in God's home where he has transferred them to. That is now their abode. That is now their home. They literally were plucked out of the orphanage, if you will, and placed into a loving family. In this case, a perfect loving family and a perfect home of righteousness. There's nothing that gives a child more peace than having a, a home of order and righteousness, a home of security, where they know their boundaries, for example, where they know the rules and where they're still loved. Nothing gives a child more peace and security than that. And that's what God the Father has done for us. He's literally placed us in a new home. Now, can we leave that abode once in a while and go back to the dark house that we lived in? Go visit it? Go look in the windows? Sure, we can do that. But where does the believer always go home to? His new home. His new abode. Where does the believer go to sleep at night, even though he was frolicking with the world a little bit? Where's his home? Where is the believer's home? Where has the believer been placed? I hope you see what I'm trying to say. The Bible says this is a foregone conclusion. It's already done, and this is now where you are. Where does he go to sleep at night? In his new home, in his new abode. Where are his belongings and possessions? In the new home. So it truly is a home. See what I mean? You've literally moved all your stuff in. God gave you your own room, all right? You can decorate it how you want. You've got security. You've got peace. You've got dressers. You've got, you know, a true home. You've made it into a home. He literally took all your stuff out of that garbage pit, that dark place, and moved you in. And so now that's the believer's abode. So how can a believer abide, abide? which means to live in the dark house anymore. We're not talking about visiting during the day when you're sneaking out and, you know, whatever, disobeying your parents. We're talking about abiding in. Do you see the difference the pastor tried to give us a week ago? The believer can't do that because he's seen the light. He's seen the goodness of the Father in this home, and he's overwhelmed. So he can't, he can't abide in death anymore. He's been placed in this new home. So the believer's home is now in the father's abode. He's been transferred there. 
And this is why the true believer can no longer abide in sin. It's no longer his home. He's been moved out of that dark house by the power of the grace of God, which never fails. He's left behind the domain of sin, the home, okay, the abode. He's left behind that dark house. He no longer resides there. He's residing in the domain of righteousness. And yes, the believer can leave his abode from time to time, dipping his foot in the pool of sin, being morbidly curious even what his old house looks like now. But the believer doesn't go to sleep there. He doesn't live there anymore. It's not his home. He's been transferred to a perfectly loving home by grace. And that's John 5, 24. He has passed out of death into life. So the believer no longer abides in sin and death. He's been placed in a new home, the home of divine righteousness. So I hope that helps some of you see what God's grace has truly accomplished for us. He's plucked us out. Like a helpless child living in a dark house, he's plucked us out. If you're an eight-year-old orphan in an orphanage, you have no money, you have no means, you have no intelligence even to, to, to go live on your own or get out of that dark place. But, you know, the sweet, sweet daddy comes along and says, I'll take that one. And he literally takes you out of that place. So we're no longer stuck in that dark house anymore as our home. We now have a safe haven, a home that is perfect and good where all of our belongings are. And we even have our own room. So finally on Sunday, the Spirit brought up works in relation to grace. So let's review this as we close today to prepare for Thursday's lesson. Grace and works. It's impossible to understand works in the Bible if your concept of grace is limited. A limited viewpoint means a limited perspective, which can only lead to confusion. This confusion is not from God, nor is any pain involved in extracting it the surgeon's fault or the pastor's fault. People can be hypersensitive about good works. Christians can be because they don't understand the fullness of God's grace in salvation. They believe they're guarding against works being a part of salvation as a part of earning it. But they end up not giving God all the credit for his works in salvation, for his works in salvation. They end up taking away credit from God. For example, on the board, if your version of grace leaves out something as fundamental as repentance, you're forced to assume it's a work of man if someone else assumes it to be part of the gospel. That's what you're forced to say. Oh, that's adding to the gospel. That's a work of man. But that's not what the Bible says at all. This is to say that God's grace somehow doesn't cover repentance. It's actually a slight against God's grace. People can think, including myself in the past, that repentance is adding to the gospel because we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and we are. 
But repentance and faith, it's two sides of the same coin, right? It's two sides of the same coin. It's talked about in the Bible as part of giving the gospel by Jesus himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ clearly includes repentance in the scriptures and that it's something he supplies to the humble heart. It's not a work of man. It's something he supplies to the humble heart. It's a necessary part of receiving, saving faith even. And it's part of telling the whole story of the gospel. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different gospel. This false gospel may proclaim grace because it is more accommodating, but it's a deceptive trap. It's actually an attack on God's grace to say he can't provide repentance to the contrite heart. To say repentance is a human work is to take away from God's grace in accomplishing salvation for a person. So on the board, the only way man is ever able to produce any good works is by the grace of God. So when Jesus and his disciples said, repent, it was a call to God's grace. In other words, give up, surrender. Only God can do this for you. Repent. Man's job has always been to accept this as God's will. When this happens, God grants it by grace. Go again to Acts 11, verse 18, as we begin to close here. Acts 11, 18. God's grace provides it all, even the good work of repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The Gentiles didn't work for it. They didn't manufacture it on their own and add to salvation. They were humble. And so God granted them the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is clearly a grace gift from God, just like faith is a grace gift from God in Ephesians 2. On the board in 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And let's not forget, even the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, he said repentance was important to the gospel. Go in your Bibles again to Acts 20, verse 18. Acts 20, 18. Even Paul said repentance was a pivotal part of his proclaiming the grace gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not adding to the gospel. You're not, it's not a work. It's not a human work. How could it be? And why would Paul preach it? Why would Jesus preach it, more importantly? Acts 20, 18. You yourselves know 
from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter reminded us of the same importance of repentance on the board in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So again, on the board, grace and works. The only way man is ever able to produce any good works is by the grace of God. So when Jesus and his disciples said, repent, it was a call to God's grace. Again, give up, surrender. Only God can do this for you, and he will if you surrender. Man's job has always been to accept this as God's will. When this happens, God grants it by grace. And just for some clarity regarding grace and works, good works are the result of being saved. Being saved is never the result of works. Since it's impossible to be saved without repentance, repentance must be a grace gift from God, not a work of man. And we've just seen that in the scriptures again. This is absolutely true. So in closing, if your version of grace doesn't include all the facets of God's plan for salvation, then your gospel is surely suspect. It's missing something. It's missing the big picture, the whole picture. By grace, God reveals fallen man's darkness and sin to the unbeliever. God reveals it to him. For that man cannot see out of the darkness on his own. Only the light from God can illumine and quicken man's perspective by grace. And this is the beginning of God's plan for salvation. Amen? All right, let's bow in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit giving us what we need and emphasizing what we need so that we can understand your point and the proper perspective going forward. We thank you for your grace. We know it's all your grace provisions. And we ask that you help us remain humble so that you can grace us out more and more all to the praise of the glory of your grace. Father, help us bring these words out to a lost and dying world that need it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.